The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome, everybody, to the first in a series of podcasts that will feature uh, members of our Influence 100. That's the uh, list of the most influential in-house communicators around the world. Um, The uh, series is sponsored by our friends at FGS Global, uh, which has, through a series of mergers over the last two or three years, established itself as the largest specialist corporate financial and public affairs firm in the world. Um, member firms uh, include Finsbury, Glover Park, Herring Schupener, and Sadva Binnen, which uh, between them were some of the biggest names in the business even before the merger. Um, and um, they have agreed to help us um, put together a series of interviews with our Influence 100, which will tackle some of the most critical issues facing corporate communicators today. We're going to be starting with a look at corporate activism, um, which is a topic that has both taken on new importance over the last five or six years and has created significant controversy over the last 12 months or so. Um, And I'm very much looking forward to getting the perspective of both of our guests on this topic. Um, I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and then we will dive straight in with a series of questions. Uh, Let's start with um, Tarod Neptune. Uh, thanks, Paul. It's great to uh, be with you and Liz. Looking forward to the discussion today. Again, I'm Tarad Neptune, the Senior Vice President and Chief Communications Officer for Medtronic, where I oversee corporate marketing, corporate communications, brand, and our corporate citizenship efforts. I've spent my career half on the agency side at a couple of the big agencies and then half on the brand side at some large global brands from Verizon to Lenovo to, to Bank of America, but super excited to be a part of this conversation. Great. Um, thank you, Tarad, and, and thank you so much, Paul, for, for having me here today. Really excited about this conversation and, and this series in general. Um, as you mentioned, I'm from FGS Global. I am a partner there, and I co-lead our strategy and reputation practice. Um, I've spent my career at agencies, primarily at, at many versions and iterations of, of FGS Global. As, as you mentioned, we've been through, through a few mergers over time. Um, and at, in my role as a co-lead of the strategy and reputation practice, we are really um, the people at the firm who take a major role in, in guiding companies and working closely with CCOs uh, and CEOs in the C-suite in general on the stakeholder economy and you know managing sort of this interconnection of stakeholders and relationships um, and taking a look at the whole and pulling on all of our great experts across financial comms, crisis comms, um, employee communications, advocacy and lobbying, and helping you know the C-suite manage and navigate the challenges of today. So thanks again, excited to, to have this conversation. So I'm I'm going to start um, with a couple of assumptions. The first is that that the three of us have been talking about stakeholder relations and the importance of of stakeholder management um, for many, many years. Um, And the second is that the conversation around stakeholders and particularly the use of that phrase, the stakeholder economy, shifted about five or six years ago as a result of a couple of things that that happened in quite quick succession. The first was that BlackRock um, started to talk about ESG and the importance of um, different metrics beyond simply the bottom line and and the appeal to shareholders. And the second was that the business roundtable 
uh, changed its definition of the purpose of a corporation to be more inclusive of different stakeholder groups, um, rather than insisting that the only purpose of a company was to satisfy its shareholders. There was an acknowledgement by the Business Roundtable, which is basically the largest group of CEOs in the country, um, that, um, that all stakeholders were equally important. Um, and so my first question is, how did those two things change life for you, uh, both in, in terms, and, and, and I'm asking this firstly of our, our client side representative, and then we can talk about it from the consultancy perspective as well, um, in terms of um, was there a, a sea change in the way your CEO viewed the world? Were they or did, did, did he or she already embrace a more stakeholder oriented view of the world anyway? Um, did it elevate your role within the organization at all? It's a great question. I'd say to, your, to the second part of your question, it unquestionably elevated the role and stature and importance of the function that you know i and my counterpart sit atop um, in a way that i think has been really helpful and accretive to some of the other things i think we'll talk about in the discussion today i think in terms of what it did perhaps most significantly in c-suites and boardrooms is broaden the aperture of an audience that again i think previously appreciated the importance of the multi-stakeholder ecosystem but perhaps did not view them on the same plane as our investors, our shareholders. And so I think the industry as a collective and CEOs as a collective committing to see and value those audiences in that way, similarly to you know, the financial stakeholders, I think changed the perspective of many C-suites and CEOs around that reality. And I think that was a significant whether you consider that intellectual or just aperture change, but a significant change that influenced uh, a lot of the things that we're dealing with today. Liz, did did you find that that as these changes were taking place, clients started to come to you with different kinds of problems or looking for different kinds of solutions? Absolutely, you know, and I I think in many ways you know, the BlackRock, the Business Roundtable, and, and sort of putting a name around these phenomenons that we're seeing, right? I mean, the we're, we're living at a time of extreme economic, geopolitical, and social volatility, right? And in many ways, it's never been harder to be a leader. It's never been harder to be a CEO. Um, and where CEOs and CFOs and others could communicate to one stakeholder at a time through one channel, through one set of messages, we now have this web of interconnected stakeholders. They, you know, an investor is a consumer, an employee is an activist, right? A regulator is more act is more likely to want to block a transaction, right? And and so we have all these these stakeholders who are interconnected and have different perspectives and have different needs and have conflicting needs. And, and we have social media, so they're vocal and the decision times are changing and they need to move quickly and there's more pressure than ever. So I think the C-suite realizes now that communications is a core part of their job, not just investor relations, but communications more broadly and communications to all of their different stakeholders. Um, so I think, in terms of the CE, the CCO and communication and the communications function more broadly, they have, <clears throat> excuse me, a bigger seat at the table. And their role at the table is to convene, build consensus, drive, <clears throat> drive decision making. And they're looking to firms like us who have that broad view, that holistic stakeholder view, who have sort of our finger on the pulse of what's happening, you know throughout the world and what other companies are doing and what other companies are seeing and are looking to us to say, how do we navigate all of this interconnection? How do we communicate to one stakeholder without upsetting another? How do we think through the implications of what one action may bring? Um, if we you know, listen to what this, if we meet these stakeholder needs, 
how do we think about what's happening next? So I think it's a whole a whole set of needs, challenges, and and questions that leaders have, right? I think we hear from CCOs and and I guess we hear more from CEOs. I know how to run a business. I know how to manage a team. I know how to you know think about my quarter and what I need to deliver on. But I don't know how to manage a polarized conversation or think about all these different stakeholder needs. That's not what I've done before in my growing up to become a, a business leader. And so I think that's where the CCO has a much bigger role. And I think that's where firms like ours have a much bigger role. Yeah, I think um, I, I think it's been a very interesting challenge um, for CC, CCOs and CEOs, actually, as you say. Um, you know, I I think a lot of CEOs reach the the top position in an organization without ever having had to think about some of the issues that we're talking about. Um, you know, as a CFO, you don't spend a lot of time worrying about what your organization thinks about gay rights or, or Black Lives Matter or any of any of those things. And then suddenly you're thrust into a role where that is sometimes to your complete astonishment, occupying half of your time because there are people bombarding you with questions about it. Um, so I always think that, that CEOs were unprepared for this era. But I also um, I also feel as if a lot of CCOs who had spent the last 20 years, I mean, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with three or more CCOs in which the phrase seat at, a seat at the table didn't come up at some point, um, usually aspirationally. Um, and um, at the risk of horribly mixing metaphors, um, I feel like a lot of CCOs were were like the the proverbial dog that chased the car, and when they suddenly caught it, when they were suddenly being asked not just how do we communicate these issues, but what should we do on these issues, um, they maybe weren't ready. Um, did did you see a lot of that, um, Liz, among among your clientele? Well, I think what maybe they weren't ready for, which I don't think any of us are, were ready for, and we're still navigating, is sort of the misinformation and disinformation that's out there, right? I mean, that, you know, and I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg with that when we see what's happening with AI and, and everything else, right? So I think it's, it's separating the noise from what's real. And I think that that kind of comes in two ways. One, it's sort of managing the executive team and saying to them like, all right, this, this tweet from a random person with two followers is not something that should derail our day and our communications strategy and what we're doing today and how we're trying to further our, our communications and business objectives. But at the same time, you know, we need to protect our narrative, we need to protect our reputation, and we need to advance our goals without worrying about all of this, this stuff out, that's out there that's out, that's not true. And how do we push back against that? Um, so I think that is something that we haven't, that we haven't been prepared for, and that we're still getting our arms around. Um, so I, I think, I think also the, the fast decision times, um, that have to that these things have to be made and thinking about how to manage some of these polarized conversations. Um, and but I think the one thing that has been really beneficial, and I think that the thing that that CCOs are really fighting for in a good way is the ability to kind of put substance and authenticity behind some of these issues, right? I think there was a period of time where, companies would come out and say, you know, we want to say something about pride. We want to say something about ESG. We want to, you know, change our marketing colors in June to a rainbow flag, et cetera. Right. And I think CCOs have been saying for a while, or communications has been saying for a while, you know, we can't do these things without substance. And I think now they're being heard on that, which I think is a really positive step that we'll continue to see. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll certainly come back to some of those issues because as, as the stakeholder management approach has evolved over the last four or five years, 
Um, I think it's presented us all with challenges that we might not have anticipated when when the the business roundtable and the BlackRock decision came down. I just want to take us back, um, to Rob, to to that period, and and um, I think when I saw the business roundtable thing in particular. Um, my biggest worry, it's been superseded since then, but my biggest worry at the time was that this was just lip service, that, you know, you'd get a bunch of CEOs who felt like the, the need to protect the reputation of the business system and the capitalist system um, at large um, made it useful to issue this statement. And at the time, um, Elizabeth Warren, for example, was, was putting forward a number of changes to governance in America that would have um, radically changed how companies were run. And I was, I was at least a little concerned that this was just a sop to, um, to people like that um, and wouldn't result in any real change. And, and again, you know, something that may be embraced by CEOs who understand these big public challenges um, can be dismissed by other people in and around the C-suite, what we used to call the dominant coalition 10 or 20 years ago. And I wondered what you found in terms of your colleagues and how did, did this really change the way that they think? Did it change their behavior or did it just make them more aware that they had to be more circumspect in some of their um, words? Yeah, it's a, great, it's a great question. And I think I do wanna reinforce one point that Liz made a little earlier in terms of, I believe this is probably the most challenging time to be a publicly traded company in recent history. And by default, an equally challenging time, or perhaps the most challenging time to be the CEO of an enterprise that's a publicly traded company uh, that we've seen in you know decades. Um, on the back of that, to your question about the, the business roundtable and the stakeholder capitalism construct, it does worry me a bit as well and makes me question when we think about what we're seeing today, what we're experiencing today. And, and many of the brands today that are caught up it to varying degrees in crises were part of that uh, commitment. And I think one of the questions I think we have to ask without being critical of any one organization is how much of that was perhaps more appealing as a marketing construct. Um, the theory of stakeholders mattering is intuitive for many of us and logical and again, looks nice on paper and sounds even better to articulate to your point, given what was happening in that environment in Washington, DC, and broadly, um, I think back to my questions, but if as organizations, we truly embrace that model, I think we'd see different reactions today coming out of those same organizations. Um, because when you pull through that concept, when you truly operationalize it, when it's core to who you are as a business and the way you operate, um, you're able to you're able to navigate the challenges that emerge um, in a different way. And I think, again, hindsight being what it is, I look at some of the challenges that many of those organizations are facing today and the way they're being responded to and question how much there really was an embrace of the reality of that concept when it was launched, you know, several years ago. Yeah. Um, I I think obviously we've seen um, in, in the intervening years four or five, um, you know, fairly seismic events um, that have pushed companies um, to take positions on societal issues um, that that again. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they might have steered clear of. I mean, the, the, the first was, was the pandemic, which was a crisis for everyone and that elevated employee and customer safety to the top of the agenda for, for almost every organization. Um, but then in fairly quick succession, often, you know, not even in succession, but at the, the consecutively, um, concurrently rather, we had the Black Lives Matter crisis. Um, we had 
um, the, um, the, the quiet quitting and the great resignation, regardless of just how real those trends were, there was certainly a perception. We had the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and to, to your point, Liz, all of that against the backdrop of increasing polarization and rampant disinformation. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, Torod, just to stick with you for a while, how did those events change both your approach and the way in which management incorporated stakeholder thinking into their decision-making process? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think in some ways to the, to the last conversation we were having, it, it forced us as brands much more quickly to put substance on the commitments that were made around, you know, thinking about our stakeholders as kind of a broad group, group, group of influencers uh, that matter to us. And so it's fascinating also to think about these, these issues you just mentioned. I mean, these all happened within the span of the last two, three years. And so not decades. And so the speed at which some right. of this happened, I think also is you know fascinating when you think about that as well. But I, I think when you think about it really from the vantage point of a C-suite, you know, a board, uh, and the conversation and this connection to this theory of stakeholder capitalism. So if we assume that is true and the commitment is real, uh, when we see these issues emerge, I think what it does is it forces us as organizations to make some real tough decisions about whether we're going to authentically show up in the way we articulated we would. You know, the fascinating thing about this stakeholder capitalism construct is that in reality, it's innately political. And the issues around those stakeholders are generally fairly politicized issues. And again, back to hindsight being what it is, there, there's an, a realization, I think, that many of us as brands are coming to recently of that fact. Um, there's no safe issue today, uh, because again, if you think about all stakeholders as equal, there's always going to be a group or groups that are unhappy just as much as you know, there are those that are thrilled with what you say or do or commit to. And you know, companies don't like that you know, incongruency. And so we generally like clarity, consistency, ease of decision-making. Um, and that again is wholly inconsistent with stakeholders. Uh, and a view that you're going to manage and leverage, or at least take advantage of these stakeholders in a way that benefits your enterprise in addition to each of those audiences. And I think all those things are unbelievably challenging issues that we're still grappling with. But I think the, the positive way that I like to think about it is that ultimately what it does is it allows brands who truly believe in what we have said to show up in that consistent way and it also separates those who said things that fundamentally we never believed to also to be shown for who we are or who they are. And I think ultimately that is a positive because it allows the marketplace um, to see and to determine uh, who um, you know, is aligned with their values and what they want from an organization or a company. And I think that's ultimately a good thing. I, I wonder, Liz, from, from your perspective as a consultant, do you, have a, do you have a framework or a series of questions that you can ask to interrogate companies that help them figure out whether, I, I, I don't quite know how to put this without making it seem insulting to, to, to a certain group of companies, but whether their commitment is real enough for them actually to take a position or a stand or, um, you know, to, to, to advance a political position? So, so we do. I mean, our, our approach really involves, you know, digging in with companies to determine the areas that they want to lead, where they want to lead the conversation, a conversation that they want to navigate <clears throat> and sort of see where they want to lean in, depending on where it goes and then areas where they want to avoid. And, you know, that certainly involves understanding 
where their values are, what they've actually done, what their stakeholders' view, views are on those, what their detractors are, what their supporters are. Um, and it includes, I think it's individual for each company, right? We kind of have a process of, of digging in, assessing risk, doing scenario planning. Um, but I think for each company, you know, it really, they really have to identify when we work with them to do this, but like, what are the issues that matter to them? What are sort of the 10 to 15 issues um, and, and monitoring those issues very closely and then monitoring issues that are sort of out there in the world and monitoring those too. And then having a framework and sort of guiding principles that helps determine for each company where they may want to lean in or not. And is it is it being close you know, to your values and, and being consistent with those values? Is it being consistent with the strategy and, and the business strategy and, and where you want to go? Is it things that are really, really important to your employees? But I think oftentimes at the end of the day, every issue needs to be kind of hashed out, right? We need to look at every issue. We need to talk about every issue. We need to see the implications across the stakeholder universe. Um, but no, I think increasingly, this is something that we're doing with so many of our, of our um, clients. And, you know, to the question that you asked, Rod, I think this sort of started, you know, I think against the backdrop of the pandemic, right? We saw <clears throat> CEOs and leaders reaching out to employees so often, right? Speaking to employees, there was this, you know, to Tarad's earlier point, this focus on um, employee wellness and employee safety and both, both, both physical safety, mental health, all of it, right? And, and we were hearing from leaders all the time. They were in our living rooms. We were in their living rooms and they were sort of creating this, this intimacy, this connection. And then in the middle of that, you know, we all witnessed, you know, the horrific murder of George Floyd. And that was something that CEOs and leaders were compelled to speak on, right? We were already in this cadence of regular communication. And then we had to address that with the people we were talking to. And then that sort of build momentum where there was this desire and need to speak on everything, right? It was like, we're, we're gonna talk about this and where you have to comment on this. And in this region, this thing happens. So the CEO has to send a letter or address it in its his or her next meeting. And so I think coming out of that, eventually it was like, whoa, this is too much, right? We kind of need to take a step back, think about where we lean in or we don't, think about where we navigate, think about what we avoid, what's core to our business, where do we need to be authentic? Um, are we, you know, where are we authentic and where can we speak credibly about things? And then I think we kind of went full circle with this, you know, quote unquote, woke capitalism area we are in today, which is where are we gonna get in, in tr real trouble now? Um, so it's, it's sort of been, I think, an interesting dynamic in how companies are tackling that and, and the, advice and counsel and the issues that they're coming to us with and how they're thinking about it. Right. I, I just want to, uh, before we get into the um, the whole discussion around woke capitalism, which is a concept I completely do not believe in, um, we, we should um, we should pull together a couple of the things that you said in, in your most recent answers, because I think it's very interesting. Um, uh, Gerard, you said, um, you know, this was always going to be political and that, um, that once you start to balance the needs of all stakeholders, um, you're going to make some people unhappy, which which fascinates me because I I do think there's always been an oversimplistic view of public relations, which is this idea that actually it's your job to make everybody like us, and why can't you just do that and and you know make the criticism go away? And then Liz, you you talked about the um, the subject of values. And that, to me, is almost the antidote, antidote to this idea that you have to make everybody like you, is you have to know what your values are and live those values and know what you stand for 
and act as if you really do stand for it. And yes, that's going to make some people some people dislike you, um, but it has an integrity to it that I think everybody, all reasonable people can understand. And I, I wonder, for example, whether um, what whether the relationship between public relations people and the values of an organization have changed. I feel like I'm asking this question clumsily, um, but I wonder to, to the extent to which perhaps corporate communicators have become the sort of values enforcers within an organization, or at least the values reminders of saying, this is what our values say, this is how we should act. That to me was always a great, lesson, for example, of the Tylenol crisis at Johnson & Johnson was we can always go back to our values and find an answer there. Have you seen more of that, Tarad? And, and do you feel a special obligation within your organization to remind people of values or is that everybody's job? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point. And to your so an aspect of what you're asking, I think we have to be careful about positioning ourselves as function leaders uh, who show up as the PR person in the room versus, um, again, where you're going with this question, the role that increasingly I see my counterparts and I playing in the C-suite, which is um, organizational alignment. So it's the understanding, the insights into these stakeholder perspectives, opinions. Liz mentioned this as, as well, you know, kind of the, the owners of the understanding of these organizations and these publics. Um, their values, what they think, what they expect, and then the place where we work to align our organization to that, right? And so I often describe it for my team as the people who connect who we are with who we aspire to be, or who we have articulated that we will be in the marketplace. And that requires internal organizational alignment across the business, across our operations, and it also requires the ability to align these stakeholder expectations in a way, again, to your point, Paul, that's not designed to make everyone happy, that calibrates an understanding of the risk associated with whatever decision it is that we are considering making or about to make. And that heightened role is increasingly what I see as the opportunity for our function. Now, we don't all play that role. Aspirationally, I think we all need to be there. Uh, but as we continue to see the stature and import of our function continue to elevate, that increasingly is the role that organizations need for those of us in these seats to play. And that the reality of the stakeholder ecosystem will mandate that someone play within organizations. So it will be us or someone else if we can't deliver on that expectation ourselves. Right. And just to, just to continue sort of building on the last couple of answers, um, you mentioned that this was always going to make some people unhappy, um, but were you ready for the extent of the backlash that we've seen in the last sort of six months or so? Um, you know, wh whether it was sort of political retaliation against Disney in Florida, uh, whether it was the, the attacks on Bud Light for including a trans person in its marketing efforts, whether it was the threats that were levied against um, Target for some of their pride activities. Were you, were you ready for the, the sheer amount of anger that some of these activities, and, and you know, I'm looking at politicians in, in various states in, in the US right now, um, you know, delegitimizing DEI and ESG as ways of doing business. Um, did you expect the backlash to be so fast and so powerful? I don't think from my vantage point, I don't think I expected it to be atop the issues that it is atop today. I think in, in concept, again, given the historical roles that our, you know, function has played, I think we're used to seeing, you know, activism within these individual communities across the board. But I do think what surprises us most, mean most, are the specific issues and the politicization um, in very sharp and divisive, you know, ways uh, that these issues have very quickly gotten to on the backs of, I think, what is increasingly 
uh, the reality of our society today. And I think that still disappoints, surprises uh, me more than uh, the reality that sure stakeholders will have reactions, some visceral to issues um, on any given day. That is not uh, unique to us. But again, the specific issues and the specific uh, ferociousness of this debate is surprising to me. So now I'm I'm thinking that the answer to this question, uh, maybe it needs to be a two-part question. The first is whether um, corporate America's commitment to DEI and ESG broadly is going to be impacted by the backlash. Um, and the second is whether the willingness of corporations to engage on particular issues um, whether it's political insurrection and voter rights, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's pride is going to be affected by the backlash. Um, how, how do you see your clients, Liz, wrestling with, with those two issues? And do they, do they wrestle with them differently? Yeah, I, I think they do. Um... I think the first thing is, and I, I think when we talk about sort of the ESG issues that are really politically charged, I, the way I really think about it is the S there, right? It's really the social issues. I think that's where it's about the emotion. I think that's where it's about this, you know, visceral, polarized conversation where you can't have rational conversation. You're not going to change people's mind, right? This, these are deeply embedded emotional feelings um, that people have feel so strongly about, and they're in their communications echo chamber, hearing the same thing over and over again. And I think companies traditionally, or you know, some of the companies that we work with even now, their reaction is, we want to stay out of the fray. We don't want to be in the middle of it. We want to be neutral. And I think the answer is, you can't be neutral anymore. Right. Because I think by not taking a stand, you're taking a stand. Right. So it's I think the first neutrality favors the status quo. Right. Exactly. So. Exactly. So I think the first step is and I think this is a really important job of the, the, the CCO to, to your earlier question is that education. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's sort of helping this the c-suite and others understand that we can't just put our head in the sand here because that is going to be just as bad as something else so it's 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 thinking about what really digging in and saying what is our position what what do we want to do here um where authentically do we sit on this spectrum and maybe it's not being the loudest voice in the room and maybe it is not saying anything, but I think they're going to have to engage in a more proactive, more strategic and more deliberate way on some of these issues than they have before, because there's just no, there's no way around it. And I think once they decide, make a decision, they're gonna have to stick to the, that decision. I think a lot of the issues that we're seeing now with companies who are getting caught more in the, in the crosshairs are companies who have made a decision, gone back, tried to appease somebody else, you know, that doesn't work either. So I think, I think we're going to have to see, at least in the near term, as this sort of very polarized uh, discourse continues, companies really taking a hard look at themselves, their strategy, their business, um, their values, and seeing where it is they want to be. I mentioned earlier that um, that that I'm skeptical about the term woke capitalism, um, and I I feel like I should come back to that and explain it, and then then offer you the opportunity to to, to comment on that. Um, my experience with business leaders and with CEOs, uh, well, probably less extensive than yours, is that ultimately they're pragmatists, that they do things for business reasons, not for ideological reasons, um, and certainly not generally for progressive ideological reasons. Um, and it feels to me like we need to be much stronger in making the case that DEI is not, and I'm thinking about DEI specifically here, is not 
um, some sort of form of altruism or, um, or reparations or, or anything like that. It is, in fact, a business imperative um, that is absolutely critical to the competitive nature of corporations going forward. Um, do you feel like we've done a good enough job of explaining why DEI matters for business reasons? I, I hope so. I mean, the, you know, this is one of those discussions that, unfortunately, the fact that we're still having it is a little disappointing. But I, I think there are not many places in business, to your point, where the reality of the value of a organization that looks like the public sits atop doesn't make sense. And, you know, all the data, again, that we all know in terms of the consequence of that. I, I do think what it says to me more significantly, and you mentioned this a little earlier, um, the, the tendency that many organizations are wrestling with today to react to what is happening in the external environment um, in a way that is inconsistent with the values um, is really what I think we're experiencing. I describe it oftentimes as we're seeing many CEOs get weak need as they see the political you know, reality, pressure, um, responses, right? You mentioned one or two. Um, and, and that's that's challenging to look at if you're the leader of a, a public enterprise and you're again trying to avoid risk, right? And um, you know, avoid you know inserting yourself in something that is largely going to have negative consequence. And that's where I think not just DEI but many of these issues are challenged today, where organizations feel the need to step back and protect. Um, versus, again, what we've been talking about throughout this entire discussion, authentically showing up in the way that, you know, they have articulated, um, you know, they want to show up. And so that, I think, is the reality of this environment. And this is one other thing that I wanted to say, at least made this point a little earlier. There's a consequence to values as well, right? They're not all easy and clean and, you know, going to generate a kumbaya reaction. And so that, that's something I think we understand in theory. And within C-suites, I think we understand it in theory, but I think that's also a, a layer of this reality as well, that organizations, once it becomes clear that, oh wait, there are unhappy constituencies about this thing that we've said or done, um, a lot of the angst and agita is generating some of this pulling back that, that I think is a really unfortunate consequence of all of this. Right. How how do you strengthen those needs? Uh, you mentioned the, the sort of weak need reaction to some of the controversy. Is it is it by uh, making sure that that organizational leaders are clear eyed about what the potential for backlash is when they make these decisions? Um, is it by um, steering them away from some of the more controversial issues? Or again, does it vary from organization to organization? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, from, I'm sorry, you're going to say something, Liz? No, no, go no. ahead. I was just going to say from my vantage point, I think it's a little bit of, of all these things that we've been talking about a bit. So I think systematizing and understanding of the insights across these stakeholders is critical. This is work that I think as functional leaders, we have to help our organizations do earlier than the event itself or in the moment. And so this data-informed, data-driven understanding of stakeholder perspectives and the insights from them, this risk calibration across the issues that we've certainly done a lot of work to identify those latent issues that are core to who we are and who our business is that we are likely to be pulled into. And then the process of war gaming the reactions and response and how that will play, that's all I think in some ways becoming increasingly the cost of admission. And again, back to those of us who sit in these seats, increasingly I think have that opportunity to prepare our organizations and our leaders for that eventuality. And then I think the last point, again, we've talked about this as well, is helping our, our organizations understand what it means to authentically show up in the moment is also something that's um, an area where there's still a lot of greenfield opportunities uh, for most brands to understand what that looks like and feels like and what that might mean in the moment when a crisis emerges from an issue that we perceive to be safe and 
um, convenient that winds up being not that way because of some reaction within our stakeholder ecosystem. So I think all those things are critical um, and sit in the roles that we play for helping our organizations and the leaders there be prepared for these realities. Liz? No, I, I, I completely agree. I think it's that preparation, you know, as Trod said, it's, it's exactly those things. It's understanding who the stakeholders are, what their sentiments are, and really scenario planning for what could happen, right? If we take a stand on this, here are all the potential things that could happen. Here's how this could play out. Here's how we can respond. Here's what we could do. But this is what we have to be prepared for. And we have to get comfortable with that. And here's if we do it the other way, here's what could happen. And really kind of look at all that across the board. Um, and I think the authenticity piece is the key to all of this, right? I think companies need to back up what they say. And they need to be comfortable in a position that's true to who they are, that they have substance and facts to back it up. And that is, you know, not just a, oh, here's what we're hearing today. We want to be responsive to this group. It's like, this is, this is the stand that we're taking. This is why, this is what we're doing. And we're, we're okay with it. And somebody may not like it, but we've already thought about why that, what that means. And we're not surprised. So the last five years have shown us that five years is in fact a, an incredibly short and long period of time, right? I mean, if you think of what we've, we've talked about it, all the tumult that we've gone through in the last five years, the sort of perma crisis that, that we've been in since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so I, I hesitate slightly to ask anybody to predict what the next five years are gonna be like but I'm going to do it anyway. What is, how is this issue going to evolve? If we're sitting in here in, in five years talking about corporate purpose and corporate activism, will we have seen a retrenchment and a return to the idea that the business of business is business and societal issues should solve themselves? Or um, will we see... Um, companies engaging boldly with big social issues. What? How is this going to evolve over the next few years? Look, I, unfortunately, even though I'm hopeful it will change, I don't think we're going to see an end to this polarization anytime soon, right? It's just who we are right now, unfortunately, and I think we're going to have to live with it for a while. Um, I do think, and I'm hopeful, that you know, as we were just saying, that companies are going to get to a place where they're not going to be reacting to every every comment, every outburst, every sort of back and forth, right? That I think this idea of having to having to be firmly committed to who you are as a company and what you stand for is going to have to become the norm, right? I think, you know, I'm I'm thinking again, you know, obviously it's it's Pride Month. And, you know, you look back to last year, the year before, every company would change their, their, you know, Twitter handle, their logo, whatever, to the rainbow flag, right? Fine. I think, though, you know, we're starting to see it this year, and I, I, I think we'll see this going on. Companies aren't going to do that unless they have a real commitment, an, a real external commitment to the LGBTQ community that they can stand on, right? I think we're just going to be seeing companies deciding where they're going to lean in, where they're going to take a stand, and it's going to be more authentic. So I hope that we're going to move away from some of this. We're just doing things to market, and then we're not sure about it, and then we're going to move away from it, but we're going to be firm in our positions. And I think the CCO and communications in general is sort of, you know, the linchpin in this because they're going to be the ones who are going to drive this decision making with by getting all the right stakeholders to the table. They're going to be the ones who push for the substance to back this up and they're going to be the ones who are going to have to get folks comfortable with this this new way of being. So that's that's my hopeful prediction, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, and I paused cuz I was not going to be optimistic and so I <laughs> going to give Liz the benefit of starting out on the optimism foot. And so I, unfortunately, I think I share her perspective that I think it's going to get more challenging. It's going to get worse before it gets better for us um, as a society. When we look at these issues and 
again, this increasing tribalization and the divisiveness, I just don't see in the short term it getting much better. I think in terms of what it means for, again, companies and brands, and we talked about this a little earlier as well, I think in an attempt to be optimistic, I think it'll it'll help us separate leaders from those that are not. And so this moment, you know, the next X years, three, five, will present clear opportunities for organizations who are committed to authentically showing up in a way that brings value to their stakeholders. It'll provide a moment for them to do that in a thoughtful, again, all the things we've been saying, authentically, thoughtfully align with their business. So for that group, I think we'll be able to clearly identify and demarcate leaders um, versus many who will use the next several years as a convenient rationale to dial back into their corners of the world, to what they perceive to be a safe place that is comfortable, you know, risk adjusted. And, you know, that's, that's ultimately, I think, going to impact them in a way that's not ideal, not optimal. But I think that's going to be the reality of how many organizations choose to navigate this really clunky terrain. But I do think the last point, and Liz mentioned this as well, is that it will, it will create for functional leaders who sit in the CCO seat or whatever that seat is titled in the next several years, an unbelievable opportunity. I still believe this is one of the most significant times for our craft to play the role that you mentioned this earlier, Paul, we've always said we wanted to play. And now we literally are the proverbial dog who, you know, kind of caught the car. And so I think that's in the most optimistic way, what I'm most excited about. Um, those of us who will be in roles, hopefully in organizations who are in the you know former category, which are the ones who are committed and doubling down to showing up as those organizations we committed to be and where we're providing that connected alignment tissue across all of these publics. That's an unbelievably exciting opportunity. And I think there'll be some brands that really jump at the opportunity to sit there. I, look, I, I find all of that tremendously optimistic, actually. I mean, I think more genuine leadership, less performative activism, and, um, you know, a separation of, uh, as you say, leaders from the rest, which I always think is a positive um, development. So I'm going to say that that's an optimistic note and a good place to end. Um, thank you very much, Tarad, for, uh, for, for your contributions. It's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you, Liz and FGS, for um, making this series of conversations possible. I hope the rest of them are just as interesting and lively as this one with it was. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you as well. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.